Hello and welcome to this Halloween special of the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Rees and on each episode I investigate a different, weird and wonderful subject. And on this episode we are going in search of the secret origins of Halloween in Wales or as it is known in Welsh, Norse Alan Gaev, the night before the first day of winter, one of three Aspirid Norse, one of three spirit nights, when ghosts and goblins and spectral ladies walk the night, not to mention the Hoch the Gutter, the tailless black sow, and you do not want to meet with tailless black sow on October the 31st. Now, as regular listeners will know, I love Halloween, and I have dedicated the entire month of October to Halloween ghosts and Halloween folklore. This is the third episode in October, and each one looks at a different Halloweeny subject. The first one looked at the history of Halloween in the world. The second one looked at the Welsh jack-o'-lantern, which is known as a dreaded ghost, the jack er lantern and this one, the third episode, is going to look specifically at Norse Kalan Gaev, but not from a Welsh perspective. On this episode, we are going to turn to America, to an American author who is credited with publishing the first full-length history, the first book history of Halloween. Her name was Ruth Edna Kelly, she was from Massachusetts, which, after doing a quick internet search, I have just discovered is the most populous state in the New England region. And as I was saying on just the last episode, or maybe the episode before, how much I would love to visit this region for Halloween to go and visit Salem. Now, this book does attempt, and you could say succeeds, in recording the entire history of Halloween from the start of of time. It goes right back to ancient Greece and Egypt where people worshipped the sun and then moves into the festivals of the Celtic people of Ireland and Britain and then gets more specific with chapters on places like Scotland and the Hebrides and England and the Isle of Man and Brittany and France and of course Wales. And that is the chapter which concerns us. And I thought we'd start by having a quick look at the preface to this book, this historic book. And this preface was written in 1919, the year the book was published, 1919, so over a century ago now. And she says, this book is intended to give the reader an account of the origin and history of Halloween, how it absorbed some customs belonging to other days of the year, such as May Day, Midsummer, and Christmas. The context is illustrated by selections from ancient and modern poetry and prose related to Halloween ideas. So she isn't messing around, she isn't doing things by halves. This is the origin and history of Halloween, it's the whole lot. Now, it should be said that some of her ideas have been 
disproved in the years, in the decades since. Nevertheless, it still reads like a wonderful story, and even if the odd bit isn't entirely correct, this is what she thought in 1919, and you could say has shaped the way we celebrate today. Nevertheless, if you listen carefully to some of her ideas and you think, do you know what, that doesn't quite sound right to me, then it might be worth looking into. But to begin at the beginning, Kelly tells us that the Celts worshipped spirits of forest and stream and feared the powers of evil, as did the Greeks and all other early races. Very much of their primitive belief has been kept up, so that to Scotch, Irish, and Welsh peasantry, brooks, hills, dales, and rocks abound in tiny supernatural beings who may work them good or evil, lead them astray by flickering lights, or charm them into seven years' servitude unless they are bribed to show favour. Now, she tells us this was in ancient times, but as anyone who listens to this podcast will know, certainly in Wales and maybe in Scotland and Ireland as well, but certainly in Wales, I'd say as recently as the 20th century, we have accounts of the peasantry, as she calls them, believing in tiny supernatural beings lurking behind these these brooks and hills and dales and rocks. But there you go, that's a talk for another day. But sticking to Halloween specifically, she does find a link between the Druids, the ancient Druids of Wales, and the modern-day Halloween. And she tells us the name Druid is derived from the Celtic word meaning sage, and is connected with the Greek word for oak, and I, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, but it's D-R-U-S in Greek. Maybe that's drus or drus, but however you pronounce it, Kelly tells us that the origin of the word druid could be traced back to the Greek word for oak. But what have these druids got to do with Halloween and Norse Kalan Gaev? Well, Kelly tells us that it was the druids who introduced the idea of fire at Halloween. And she writes, In Wales, the custom of fires persisted from the time of the druid festival days longer than in any other place. So the druids began this tradition of having these giant bonfires at special times of year. And this lingered longer in Wales than elsewhere. And if we take Kelly's word on this, it wasn't just wood that was being burnt. First, sacrifices were burnt. The creatures merely passed through the fire. So by creatures, I'm assuming she means animals. They're animals, birds and livestock, not human sacrifice. Although they have been accused of that as well. But nevertheless, back to this, the creatures were merely passed through the fire. And with the rise of Christianity, fire was thought to be a protection against the evil power of the same gods. So th th there's a few ifs and buts and maybes here, but if we assume that Halloween does date back to these ancient Celtic harvest welcoming of winter festivals, and then Christianity came along and put its stamp on it, well, the ancient Celts, in, in Wales certainly, were having big fires, big bonfires on this night to worship their gods. But when Christianity came along, they kept the fire bit. They liked that. But instead, that fire was now used as protection against 
those old gods. So either way, there was fire. Either it was a good thing to worship the god with, or it was a bad thing to keep them away. Whatever happened, there was going to be fire regardless. And there is a specific mention of a particularly big fire which took place in Pontypridd, which we are told was the Druid religious centre of Wales. So Pontypridd in the south, it is still marked by a stone circle and an altar on a hill. In after years, it was believed that the stones were people changed to that form by the power of a witch. And I do love that there is a tradition in Wales where a standing stone can't just be a standing stone. It can't it can't just be a stone somebody just plonked there. There has to be a supernatural explanation. And in Pontypridd, those stones were once people who have been transformed into stone by a diabolical witch. What a wonderful story. Now, Kelly doesn't name these stones, but if I had to take an educated guess, there is an impressive stone circle in Pontypridd, and it does have an altar in the middle of it. And it's it's a wonderful spot called the Rockin' Stones. And what I'll do, I'll share a photograph on social media if anyone wants to look, or you can Google the Rockin' Stones in Pontypridd. But there's one little problem with the way Kelly describes them. And just I've just had a quick look, and I'm on the Ron the Canontaf government page. And they say that you know the, the, the rocking stone is a glacial boulder remaining from the Ice Age. So that boulder really does go back even before the Celtic people. It formed the central point for a gorseth, or gathering of bards, in 1814, which was organised by stonemason Edward Williams, known as Yolo Morganog. Now, Yolo Morganog is a hugely, hugely influential and slightly controversial figure in Welsh culture. And we won't go into that right now, but we will say that the Gorseth Circle of Smaller Stones was constructed in 1849 by Evan Davis. And so, assuming I am talking about the correct place in Pontypridd, and th th there can't be that many of them, I think it's worth bearing in mind that, yes, that altar in the middle might date from the Ice Age, but all of those other stones circling around it, those stones which were once people and have been transformed by a witch, date from the middle of the 19th century and might not be quite as ancient as some people believe. So in the south, we had druids lighting gigantic bonfires, especially in Pontypridd. In the north, the November Eve fire, as it is called, is something each family built in the most prominent place near their house. So maybe not quite on such an epic scale as we might have seen in the south, because, well, it could have been in your own back garden or somewhere, and you don't want to burn your house down for Halloween. And this was called Coil Coith. Now, it should be noted quickly here, but nowadays we would call this Coil Kerth which is the Welsh word for bonfire. But in Kelly's account from 1919, it is called Coil Coith. C-O-E-L, Coil, and Coith, C-O-E-T-H. And it was into this Coil Coith as it neared the end of the night, into this dying fire that each member of the family threw a white stone marked 
so that they could recognise it again. After throwing their stone into the fire, they circled it hand in hand, said their prayers, and then went home to bed. In the morning, each searched for their stone, and if they could not find it, they believed that they would die within the next 12 months. This is still credited, Kelly tells us. So in 1919, this is still credited. This apparently was taking place in the north of Wales some hundred years ago as I record this episode. And maybe there are still people doing this today. Maybe there are people in the north of Wales, maybe in the south as well. Maybe there are people in Wales who are still throwing their white stones into a bonfire. And if they disappear overnight, maybe some magical creature steals them away, then they know they have 12 months left to live at the most. Now, next we move on to the dreaded Huch the Gutter. Now, Kelly doesn't use those words to describe this tailless black sow. She doesn't, she doesn't really use the original Welsh language words much at all. And we will look at the Huch the Gutter in more detail on the next episode. But for the purposes of this episode, she does warn us against encountering this creature and gives us a little proverb to remind us why. And she tells us that the Huch the Gutter, which I'm not entirely sure how to describe it, but it is a ferocious-looking supernatural sow, a pig, a tailless pig and I know that's slightly unusual I know it's Halloween and you expect ghosts and goblins and fairies well in Wales we have a terrifying pig that hunts you down and she tells us that there is a custom of watching the fires these big fires burn until the last spark dies and so in order to do that you have to be up and about quite late way past bedtime way past the witching hour, when you should be tucked up safely at home, not out and about, risking an encounter with the Huch the Gutter. But as soon as that fire dies, it is Huch the Gutter time. And as the last spark died, people would instantly rush down the hill because, in inverted commas, the devil or the cutty black sow take the hindmost. And just to explain that quickly, hindmost, of course, means the last. So everyone rushes home, and whoever is last to get home, they are the ones that will be caught by either the devil or the hook, the gutter, or the cutty black sow, as Kelly refers to it. And it should be pointed out quickly that cutty means short tail. And again, I will explain all of this in depth on the next episode, but hook, the gutter does translate as the cutty black sow or the tailless or short-tailed black sow. A female pig which has had piglets. Who would have thought that they could cause so much terror? And she tells us that there is a Cardiganshire proverb which says, and I quote again, a cutty black sow on every style, spinning and carding every All Hallows' Eve. Now, as I've mentioned many a time, Halloween is called Norse Calan Gaiav in Wales, and Kelly tells us that that is the night of the winter Calens, that is, the night before the first day of winter. And to the Welsh, 
it was New Year's Eve. So according to Kelly, not only was it the start of winter, it was the start of a new year. This is what people were celebrating on Norse Kalangayev, the night before Kalangayev. And the Hukhthi Gutter wasn't the only dangerous creature prowling the night on Halloween. We also had to keep an eye out for those mischievous sprites known as Utaloithtig. We had to keep our wits about us from the fairy folk. And she tells us that while the Welsh tales resemble those in other nearby countries, she recalls one tale, one story, of a man who lay down to sleep inside a fairy ring, which is a circle of greener grass where the fairies danced by night. The fairies carried him away and kept him for seven years. And after he had been rescued from them, he would neither eat nor speak. So... If you notice one of your friends has suddenly gone missing, they've been gone for, God, it feels like seven years. And when they come back, your once chatty colleague now says nothing and is right off their food. They used to stuff their face. Now they will not touch a morsel. Then maybe they were daft enough to lay down and sleep in a fairy ring where the fairies danced by night on Norse Kalan Gaev. Now, Kelly also tells us that in the sea, in the coast of Wales, was the Otherworld. Otherworld with a capital O. Now, she doesn't mention this, but the Otherworld in the Welsh language is better known as Anun. And Anun, she tells us, is out in the sea. And to describe the scene, she quotes from Welsh Melodies by Joseph Parry. Now, Joseph Parry, going off on a quick tangent is one of Wales's greatest composers, arguably his most loved song, his greatest hit, as it were, is a song called Mavanui, which, if you are not familiar with, I would get on one of those music-playing-type sites and listen to Mavanui. And also, and I love this, he wrote the first opera in the Welsh language and was also the first Welsh composer to write any opera, and that was an opera called Blodwen. And Blodwen does tie in nicely with some legends and folklore, which I think might make a nice episode in the future. Any any excuse for me to shoehorn some opera into my, into my episodes. But back to Halloween, she quotes from Parry's Welsh melodies, and she says that the sea where the other world can be found is a green fairy island reposing in sunlight and beauty on ocean's calm breast. So this this does not sound like an island of terror, like, like the island of the dead in an Arnold Bocklin painted. This sounds quite idyllic. It's a green fairy island reposing in sunlight and beauty on ocean's calm breast. You can just picture ocean's calm breast is not somewhere to go on Halloween to be scared. Well, Maybe there's something more to it. Because she continues that this was the abode of the Druids. Remember them? And hence, all the supernatural beings were somewhere betwixt heaven and hell, something that neither stood nor fell. And with that rather cryptic quote, she comes to an end. So I, I, I'm taking from that that the Druids did not live there alone. And when she says all supernatural beings... Some of them might have been the lovely, happy, friendly fairy folk. Some of them might have been a little bit more malicious. 
and a little bit more suited to Halloween. Now, she goes on to mention that these fairies or pixies are to be met at crossroads, where happenings such as funerals may be witnessed weeks before they really occur. Now, there's a lot mixed up in one here. There's the kind of the, the idea of death omens and phantom funerals, the toily, which can be seen at crossroads, as can fairies or pixies, she calls them. And it should be pointed out here, I guess, that crossroads are supposed to be haunted places on Halloween in Wales. And what Kelly doesn't mention, very carelessly, but what she doesn't mention is that you are also supposed to encounter a lady in white there, which I think might be more terrifying than a fairy or a pixie. Although, well, I guess I guess it depends how what kind of fairy or what kind of pixie it is, really. Maybe it's Frank Black. That that would be quite a nice encounter. Come to Wales and encounter Frank Black and Kim Deal at the crossroads. But that's that's a very niche joke for alternative rock fans of a certain age there, I think. So let's move on. So next she speaks of the traditional food and games that would be played on All Hallows' Eve in Wales. And she says, supper, parsnips and cakes are eaten, so parsnips and cake for food, as well as nuts and apples which are roasted. A puzzling jug holds the ale, and in the rim are three holes that seem merely ornamental. They are connected with the bottom of the jug by pipes through the handle, and the unwitting topper is well drenched unless he is clever enough to see that he must stop two of the holes and drink through the third. So this this puzzling jug, and you can find images of these online if you do a search for them, but the idea was that they were made in such a way that unless you knew the correct combination, you were probably going to be soaked with beer when you tipped this thing to drink from it. And it, it really was a case of trial and error. You put your fingers on the holes a bit a bit like playing a recorder, the musical instrument, where by covering different holes, you create different sounds. And this jug worked in a similar way. By covering different holes, hopefully you didn't get soaking wet as a result. So never wear your best clothes to an old Welsh Halloween party because you could get soaked. Well, saying that, you shouldn't wear your best clothes anyway. You should be in a costume or something anyway. So that is the puzzling jug. That is the food. And spells are tried in Wales too, with the apples and the nuts which are roasted. There is, and I am I'm about to quote, there is dicking and snapping for apples. I'll leave you work out exactly what she means by dicking and snapping, but you do that for apples, and nuts are thrown into the fire, denoting prosperity if they blaze brightly, but misfortune if they pop or smolder and turn black. So really, you want your nuts to blaze brightly if you want to be rich. Now, the next game, or form of divination, however you want to look at it, is quite unusual. And I will be looking at this custom again on the next episode, because there are two slightly different versions of this custom, and I think those differences have a huge impact on the desired outcome. So what we'll do for now is we will just focus on Kelly's, on the American retelling of this custom. 
Next week, we will look at a version recorded by a Welsh woman. But for now, here's Kelly's version. And we'll, we'll excuse her slightly odd take on Welsh history. But she says that since King Cadwallo decorated his soldiers with leeks for their valour in battle by a leek garden, they have been held in high esteem in Wales. Now, I'll, I'll look at leeks and why leeks are held in high esteem on a, on a future episode, probably around St. David's Day or something. But for, for now, just go with the fact they were held in high esteem. And in this game, a girl sticks a knife among leeks at Halloween and walks backward out of the garden. She returns later to find that her future husband has picked up the knife and thrown it into the centre of the leek bed. Now, besides being slightly sinister, the fact that your future husband is walking around throwing knives at night, I, I'm not really sure what you're supposed to deduce from that, to divine from it, because it, you know, it doesn't say if they throw them into a, a short leek, it will be a short husband, for example. It just says... They will throw it into the centre. And so, I, well, I guess, I guess the only thing you could divine from that is if that knife has not been moved, maybe you will not have a husband. I, I don't know. But what I do know is that next week's version will give you some more conclusive answers. But anyway, that's one game. If we look at another, this one, the girl has to take two long-stemmed roses to her room in silence. She twines the stems together, naming one for her sweetheart and the other for herself, and thinking this rhyme. Twine, twine, and interwine. Let his love be wholly mine. If his heart be kind and true, deeper grow his rose's hue. And then she can see by watching closely, her lover's rose grow darker. Again, sounds slightly sinister to me. It sounds like the rose, the rose is dying almost. But there you go. Let's move on to the sacred ash charm. And the sacred ash charm tells us that the party of young people seek an even-leaved sprig of ash. The first one who finds one calls out what, what I'm taking to be Knever. It is spelt slightly differently in the book. It's been anglicised to C-Y-N-I-V-E-R, but I'm taking that to be C-Y-N-I-F-E-R, because in the Welsh alphabet, F is the same as V in the English alphabet. So they call out Knever. If a boy calls out first, the first girl who finds another perfect shoot bears the name of the boy's future wife. So I guess if you don't if you don't really fancy whoever called out first, you need to stop looking for leaves really because you're going to be stuck with them for a long long time. If you're the only girl in the village with quite a unique name. And finally to wrap up the evening in a good old traditional Welsh way, just like I'm sure everyone does today, dancing and singing to the music of the harp close the evening. Now that would bring to a close a traditional Norse Kalangai of Halloween party in Wales. And the next bit from Kelly, I, I think, is a typo, is a mistake, because I, I've looked at other editions of this book and they all 
repeat the same sort of confusing bit. But even though it doesn't entirely make sense, I'm still going to tell you it, mainly because I just love the first line. And I'll just quote that for you now. And she says, Instead of leaving stones in the fire to determine who are to die, people now go to church. So those old games of putting stones in the fire and then running back home away from the Hukhthi Gurda, that's all gone. People now go to church. This was in 1919. And I think she might be horrified to find out that nowadays, if anything, we've gone the opposite direction. There are now less people going to church, but there are probably more people sitting on a hill watching a fire burn out before running home from the terrors of the night. But there is a bit more to that to that quote. As I said, I think this is a typo, but I'll read the whole paragraph to you. And she says that instead of leaving stones in the fire to determine who are to die, people now go to church to be by the light of a candle held in the hand the spirits of those who will not be alive next Halloween. Now, that that, that is a bit of a jumble of words that don't really make sense, but I guess you, you, you can somehow work out who is due to die in the next... 12 months based on who is holding a candle or something i think i think she's getting at but we are we are nearing the end well that is the end of halloween but she goes on to tell us that on all souls day after halloween children in eastern wales so those over towards the english border go from house to house singing for in inverted commas an apple or a pear a plum or a cherry or any good thing to make us merry. All of which does sound suspiciously like trick-or-treating. Although with this example, it's just children asking nicely for some fruit, not give us loads of chocolate bars or we wrap your house in toilet paper. And finally, Kelly tells us that it is a time when charity is given freely to the poor. On this night and the next day, fires are burned, as in England, to light souls through purgatory, and prayers are made for a good wheat harvest year by the Welsh, who keep the forms of religion very devoutly. So I think you can see quite nicely there how fire has been adopted into the traditions, if, if you want to call them that, of the Church, of Christianity, but also how it still tips its hat towards those pagan harvest festivals as well. Now, that was an American's view of Halloween in Wales. The American, Ruth Edna Kelly, who is credited with writing the first history of Halloween. And you could say, without people like Kelly taking the subject seriously, maybe the holiday wouldn't have developed as it has, wouldn't have become such a huge global or certainly Western phenomena. So I think we owe Kelly a huge, huge Thank you for that. Unless, of course, you hate Halloween, in which case you, you don't. But assuming you like Halloween, and if you've, you've listened to me waffling on for half an hour about it, then you must have some interest or, or some kind of sadistic streak. I don't know. But that was Kelly. That was the American look on the Welsh traditions. But how did the Welsh themselves record what was going on? In typical box set cliffhanger tradition i'm afraid i'm gonna have to save that for the next 
episode, the next episode of this podcast on the same bat channel in seven days, or depending on when you're listening to this, if you're playing catch up, it might already be online for you. But episode 21 of this podcast is going to be dedicated to the Welsh folklore of Norse Kalangayev. And as you will discover, there are some similarities with what Kelly wrote about, but there are also some wonderful, wonderful additions and the odd contradiction. All of which brings me to the point in the episode where I like to ask what you think about all that, and do you have any experience with any of these traditions that Kelly has spoken about? Maybe you are in Wales and you still try and divine to work out if your future husband is throwing knives at leeks in your garden at night. Or maybe you are somewhere else in the world. Maybe in Canada you throw knives at some other object instead. I don't know. But wherever in the world you are, if you have any thoughts, any comments, it's always lovely to hear from people. So please track me down. It's quite easy to do. Just do a search for Mark Reese and put ghosts or whales or folklore in, and I will pop up on top on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or through my website, where you can just email me directly. And if you're super quick, who knows, maybe I can include some comments in the two remaining Halloween episodes I've got coming up. As mentioned, next week is going to be all about the Welsh folklorists, or folklorists in Wales, I should say, rather than just Welsh people, writing about their own traditions. And then on the fifth and final week, we are going to have a huge paranormal party where I'm going to get loads of guest stars on and launch my new book, Paranormal Wales. And as always, if you don't want to miss out on any of those and you have enjoyed this episode, please consider hitting the subscribe button. It's great for you because you will never miss an episode ever, and it's great for me because I know people are enjoying this podcast and they would like to hear more. So if you could, please consider hitting the subscribe button or just spread in the word in any way you can. Now, to wrap things up in this episode, I have quoted and referred to Kelly's Halloween book from 1919, and right at the end of that, she includes a selection of poems which were published over the years in Harper's Weekly. Now, Harper's Weekly, I'm, I'm familiar with the name, I've never seen a copy, but by all accounts, it was a journal or an American political magazine which ran from 1857 up until 1916. So this had just been cancelled or just came to an end for whatever reason a few years before she published this Halloween book. And while it might have been a political magazine, it did presumably, or, or, or definitely I guess, publish poetry because they have been reproduced in this book. And I'd like to finish with a poem which is credited to an A.F. Murray and was published in Harper's Weekly on October the 30th, the eve of halloween in 1909 and it is entitled simply halloween and before i read it it just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening i've been mark reese this has been my ghosts and folklore podcast it's the best it's the beautiful it is the only ghosts and folklore podcast beaming to you from wales to the world. Happy Halloween, Norse Kalangayev Happis, and 
Until next time, to wrap things up, here's a little poem entitled Halloween. <clears throat> Always clear the throat before poetry. A gypsy flame in on the hearth, sign of this carnival of mirth. Through the dunfields and from the glade, flash merry folk in masquerade. It is the witching Halloween. Pale tapers glimmer in the sky. The dead and dying leaves go by. Dimly across the faded green, strange shadows, stranger shades are seen. It is the mystic Halloween. Soft gusts of love and memory beat at the heart reproachfully. The lights that burn for those who die were flickering low. Let them flare high. It is the haunting Halloween. No star.